Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, mayors from Canada's major cities are calling for emergency federal funding for the Trudeau government to cope with the housing shortage. Canada has collected $839 million in related steel and aluminum tariffs, but the aid for that sector has mostly remained unspent. Also, Parliament resumed today in the new building as the 2019 election draws closer. What can we expect? Plenty. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Large Urban Mayors Caucus is meeting today. Now, these are mayors from the big cities right across Canada, and uh, they are taking advantage of the fact that the Prime Minister and his cabinet and MPs are back in Ottawa today, and they're holding a session up there, and uh, they've got a wish list. Uh, they'd like to come away with some commitments, you would think, from the Prime Minister and from this government about uh, some of the problems that cities are facing these days. But uh, saying it and getting some action on it are two different things. Now, we're going to attempt to get a hold of Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger a little bit later on. He's actually uh, in a meeting with the mayors right now and the Prime Minister. Uh, we'll see if we can hook up with him. But I want to talk to somebody who's been there, done that, uh, and gone up to Ottawa and talked to Prime Ministers and, and, and tried to lay out the concerns that cities have. That, of course, is former Hamilton mayor, uh, now lobbyist, of course. But uh, Larry Deani, of course, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, talk about the, uh, the 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 problems that can be faced and, of course, the challenges. Uh, Larry, good morning. It's great to have you on the show today. Well, good morning, uh, Bill. My pleasure. Listen, there's strength in numbers, uh, and there's a lot of common issues. I know that you know Hamilton may have different issues than Calgary, than Vancouver, than Montreal. But when you all get together and start talking... And, and I've had the honor and the pleasure of, of sitting in on a couple of those meetings with the large urban mayors. It's amazing the number of common problems you have. Well, absolutely. Um, and there is strength in numbers. And uh, let's face it, uh, the majority of uh, Canadians today live in large cities or cities of varying sizes, but certainly uh, um, most of them in large ones as well. And so, you know, whether it's Vancouver or Montreal or Toronto or Hamilton, you've got the same issues around infrastructure, around um, development, around public transit, around poverty. So those are the issues that sort of bind the mayors together, and they can speak with a common voice in terms of trying to get some programs going that might help. Let me maybe a historical note, uh, Larry, to go back just a few years, actually to around the time that, that you were the mayor here in the city of Hamilton. Uh, there was a, a real problem then trying to identify not the problems but some solutions to this because the federal government policies for right up, I guess, from Confederation right up until almost the beginning of this millennium were really geared, as you mentioned, more towards rural than they were urban, notwithstanding the fact that there had been a huge population shift here where, you know, back in the days of Confederation, I think 75% of the people in this country lived in, in rural areas. Now it's about 80% that live in cities. But the policies didn't really reflect that, did they? No, they didn't, and and that was one of the uh, breakthrough items that uh, we managed uh, when uh, you know uh, uh, 14 years or so ago now, uh, when I was in the chair, um, and the issue was around sustainability, the sustainability of programs, the sustainability of of assistance for uh, for cities and 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 therefore citizens. And before then, uh, you know, uh, we we've heard this before, and we heard it just recently that uh, cities are creatures of the province, and the province had domain, still does have domain, over what happens in uh, in cities, uh, whether they amalgamate or whether they get assistance in this, that, or the other program, or whether they're downloaded onto uh, in terms of some provincial costs that come down to the municipalities. 
And uh, what the federal government does is it transfers money over to the provinces, and then the provinces decides what to do and how to spend that money and how to help cities. Well, for the first time, um, you know, nearly 15 years ago now, um, we actually managed to get some direct funding. Uh, there were programs as well. I don't want to say that they, we were totally abandoned by the um, by the federal government, and I'm thinking of housing and uh, central mortgage and housing and so on. But but for the first time, 15 years ago, we actually got some sustainable money coming directly into the coffers of the municipality. And that was, of course, the famous uh, gas tax uh, yeah. uh, revenue that came that, that over the last number of years, I mean, I haven't done the calculation, but I'm sure it's, it's meant hundreds of millions of dollars for municipalities, and including Hamilton. And that money was earmarked, uh, some of it, for, for transit issues and others for infrastructure issues. Uh, and so, I mean, that was a breakthrough. I remember being at the Prime Minister's residence. It was Prime Minister Martin at the time, along with the big city mayors, and we were sitting around the uh, the uh, dining room table, very informal. I mean, it, you know, the Prime Minister had spoken at, uh, at our session, and then the word came out that he invited us back to his house uh, just to continue the discussion. And it was then, around that table, that really the, uh, the New Deal for Cities, I think is what it was called, was hammered out in terms of the share of the, uh, of, of, uh, the gas tax revenue, which has meant uh, a lot for communities such as ours. The concern here, uh, just I know we're kind of getting into wordsmithing here, but it was an important uh, dis- uh, distinction then, and you've touched on it, Larry. Is because is the excuse the government's always said in the past was, look, we we gave you money for finance, uh, for transit, we gave you, but it was one-time funding. In other words, there'd be a big pot of money that was announced during a budget, and uh, the lion's share of it would go to Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, but, you know, the other cities might get a little bit. But when the money was gone, it was gone. And what you've always been asking for is, no, a sustainable pot. In other words, a program that's always going to have money in it that we know we can count on year in and year out. Yeah, a predictable amount of money coming in, so you can do uh, the long-range uh, planning that you need to do, or even the short-range for that matter, but uh, but you can plan on it. You don't have to go cap in hand uh, every year hoping that you know the budget will give you some resources. That still happens, of course, but, but at the very least uh, then there was a predictable yearly amount. There was a formula uh, that came to cities still active today. So, and, and that was a big victory at that time, but invariably when governments come upon hard times, and we went through a recession just not too long after that when there was a change of government, and they tended to say, okay, we're going to spend less money. Uh, and fortunately, these social-oriented programs, uh, transportation, uh, housing, things of this nature, seem to be the first ones on the chopping block. Unfortunately, uh, they are, you know, um, and all governments, I suppose, do this, um, regardless of stripe, quite frankly. You know, they have their own uh, budgetary pressures, um, and those include what uh, the, the transfer payments that are made to various boards, agencies, municipalities, and so on. And uh, and they, uh, they have taxes that they need to collect to, to be able to supply those programs. And, of course, all governments are interested in getting reelected, which means that you can't raise taxes these days at all, which I, I think is, is ludicrous. As costs go up, you can't, uh, you, can't you know, t- taxes moderately and understandably, and at least uh, the rate of inflation should also meet those, uh, meet those uh, uh, rising costs. Otherwise, you'll, you'll have to ditch programs that people rely on. But nevertheless, all governments want to be seen as prudent uh, spenders of tax money. 
And that is well and good. But what that means, of course, is that they tend to offload their expenses onto other levels of government. And we're at the bottom end. And so if, if the feds, as they did under Mr. Kretien, when, when they, um, when they uh, uh, you know, balanced their budgets, they offloaded into the province, and the provinces offloaded into the city. And, and you know, the, the old adage is also true that there's really only one taxpayer, and whether you're paying it through the federal tax or the provincial tax or the local taxes, uh, you're going to end up paying it in the end. So governments need to get together, quite frankly, and be able to do the right thing. And pressures always mount. I, I, you know, I mean, I was involved in politics, Bill, and you were for a long time. I was involved in it for 25 years. Never once do I remember uh, citizens coming forward and saying, we want fewer programs. We want less service. They always want more, but they don't want to necessarily pay the commensurate price. And so part of the leadership of government is striking that balance that is responsible with the money but provides the services that people need. And therefore, you need to work with other levels of government to achieve that. You cannot do it by yourself if you're a municipality. The tools for raising money are just too few, and uh, they rely exclusively, almost entirely, on the uh, on the property tax uh, that we pay uh, yearly and some user fees, but mostly the property tax. We used to rely on the uh, on the uh, uh, industrial sector, uh, especially in Hamilton when we, our industry was roaring. Uh, they paid for most of the cost of things. But, of course, we all know what happened to that industry. It disappeared, and so it's all on the shoulders of the homeowner, and that cannot be sustained unless you get some assistance from other levels of government. But there's a, there's a structural problem with that, Larry, and I know you've talked about that with prime ministers and premiers in the past, is that the, the provincial and federal tax we pay is based on income. So, I mean, philosophically, anyway, the more you make, the more you probably pay, and there are people of low income that probably don't pay any federal or, in some now, some provincial income tax. But everybody that owns property pays property tax. As a matter of fact, even somebody that rents probably pays property tax. But it's not based on your ability to pay. It's based on where you live. Exactly. And that's so you're going to get stuck. In, you're going to get it in the back no matter what. And and, and, and that's exactly and, right. And by the way, that's paid with after-tax dollars. In other words, after you pay your federal tax, your provincial tax, okay, Mr. Deanna, here's the money you have left. Oh, wait a minute. Here's your property taxes. Take that out of that pile. And, and I remember, Bill, when you and I were on council together, you spoke very eloquently on that very issue and the unfairness of the system that we've got that relies strictly on that property taxpayer. And circumstances for property taxpayers change, especially when they retire. They don't make as much income, and yet they have the same expense if they live in their own home. I remember, uh, uh, you know, he was a nice guy, but he was a fairly insensitive um, uh, treasurer. Um, not in the city of Hamilton. I, I won't mention uh, which city, but it's one that I served in as well. And he was a very competent guy. But I remember going to him uh, privately with a, an issue of a senior who just couldn't afford to pay his taxes. And he looked at me and he said, well, he should sell his home and move. And so you're looking at asking somebody who's poured his life and soul. This guy was a vet to begin with as well. This is quite a number of years back now. And, and you're, you're saying to him, look, you lived in the same home for the last 45 years. You can no longer afford it. Uh, your taxes are breaking your back. Therefore, sell your home and move to a, either a cheaper place or a condo or rent so that you can make ends meet. And that is patently unfair, especially since the costs, and especially we went through all the downloading, uh, you know, during the... Uh, uh, one of the uh, governments that that was in power at at, at, um, at uh, one point in our political careers, 
where they downloaded extra costs, and so your your costs rose tremendously, and yet you're being asked to vacate your home. That is patently unfair, but that's a system we've got. Wasn't Wilbur Ross? Wasn't the uh, no? No, I guess not. <laughs> but he, the, one of the most telling statistics about this, and I remember doing a breakdown on this, uh, and and I'm sure it's relatively the same uh, fraction now. You, you take a, 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 a loony right now, one dollar, uh, okay, one dollar coin for Canadian fund, and as you say, there's only one taxpayer. So here's your tax dollar, this loony. Seven cents of that loony goes to municipal pr- programs. The other ninety-three cents is all divided up between federal and provincial. Only seven cents out of that dollar. That, that's the, the kind of challenge you faced as mayor, and, and I'm sure Mayor Eisenberger has similar numbers. Oh, absolutely, and, and, uh, and it's tough, uh, and especially because uh, things get more complicated. You know, uh, I mean, we're talking about issues today that we didn't uh, have when you and I were involved, and we weren't involved too many years ago. <clears throat> when you're talking about the, you know, the opioid issue that people expect municipalities to, to, to get involved in, in uh, resolving, when you're talking about the uh, immigrant issue, I mean, the influx of, of uh, uh, needy people has has really uh, risen, uh, and Canada is very generous, and Hamilton has done its part, and it needs to do its part. But these are all expenditures that need to be made. And, um, and employment, uh, although it's been very good in our city, um, isn't, you know, what it was uh, when I was growing up in Hamilton, where you could walk down Burlington Street, knock on almost any door on those Fortune 500 companies and get a decent paying job. Uh, I mean, the the whole issue of living wage didn't exist when I was a kid. I mean, there wasn't a concept around that. It was always a living wage because these companies paid well. Now you've got these challenges that are, are complex and mounting, and so municipalities need to work with and rely on other levels of government in order to maintain the quality of life to which we are accustomed. Got a minute left. Do you get the sense, though, Larry, even since your time, as, as you've observed now, that uh, that federal and provincial governments understand that and understand they've got to be more collaborative? Well, and, you know, I don't, I'm trying to stay nonpartisan here because all governments, as I said before, face fiscal challenges, and they're all, they, all of them are well-meaning. They try to do the right thing. But, but it depends on the government that's in power as to whether they assist or whether they restrict. Now, they all say they are assisting, even those who want to cut costs in order not to pay you know, exorbitant interests and to put more money into programs as opposed to, to the, the banks. But, but the, 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 the fair really, the, really, the fair answer is that there are some governments who are more focused on the bottom line and there are other governments that are focused on programs. I happen to think that both are important. Um, you can't be you can't be obsessed with the bottom line because then you'll cut programs that people need and that'll hurt. And you can't be uh, you know spending like a drunken sailor because that'll hurt as well. You got to strike the right balance. And we've had governments that have actually done that. We've had governments that have not. Former Hamilton Mayor Larry Danny, always a pleasure, Larry. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Economic news uh, today. There was an economic summit, international economic summit in Davos, Switzerland, uh, over the last week. Uh, it's, it's gone now. Everybody's back home. Uh, the U.S. Uh, Donald Trump did not attend, but uh, Canadian representatives were there. Interesting, too, in an in interview, uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Christy Freeland was asked about the tariff situation. And that's an ongoing battle, of course, between uh, the United States and Canada, because Donald Trump, of course, imposed tariffs on steel and aluminum. And uh, the Canadians retaliated with a, a number of different tariffs. But uh, Minister Freeland suggested at that time that, look, at, uh, if the U.S. drops the steel and aluminum tariffs, Canada will drop theirs, as she said, 30 seconds later. 
which is, I guess, gratifying news. Problem is, is the U.S. hasn't shown any indication at all that they're going to do that. But when you start crunching some numbers, uh, we're told now that the Canadian government has collected about $839 million in steel and aluminum tariffs. But uh, according to a story in CBC over the weekend, they say, well, the steel sector uh, is not seeing an awful lot of that money. They said uh, very little of it has actually been spent trying to mitigate some of the damage from the U.S. tariffs. Uh, I want to bring Bob Bertina into the conversation. Bob, of course, uh, is the uh, Liberal MP for Hamilton East Stony Creek and has been working uh, on the uh, steel file for the longest time and uh, wanting to get some clarity on this uh, just before they go back into a uh, resume parliament uh, for the, the winter session. Bob, thanks for the time. I really appreciate you jumping in here. Well, thanks for calling, Bill. I appreciate it. Well, I know that you've uh, sent some numbers over to me over the last couple of weeks about exactly what's going on. The suggestion here that CBC is saying is, look, at the government's collected uh, close to a, a million dollars, a billion dollars, I guess, and $839 million, yeah. uh, and, and it's uh, sitting there someplace. And, and I don't know if the insinuation is this is going into general revenue, but it was supposed to be helping the steel industry. And they're saying, well, you're not giving them a whole lot of help. Now, please, if you could, I'd like you to address that. Well, there is that money has been collected, and the position of the government was that uh, almost, I guess, uh, like the price on pollution, that the money would be returned, you know, in in other forms. So, in this case, we have uh, collected those monies, eight hundred plus million. Some has gone back, and the reason it's gone back is that under the programs that the government has created companies have applied for and in many cases received uh, those remissions. So you had uh, Chad Collins on not so long ago about the cannabis and the government's kind of let everybody down in terms of the policing costs. But in fact, there's $247 million made available to municipalities and police forces uh, which for which they would apply for that money. And so you would have to ask any local police force whether they have, in fact, applied for that money. And similarly, uh, to steel companies, uh, to say that you you have to get your government relations people to uh, look at um, the programs and fill out the application forms. It's, It's a little oversimplification, but basically that's the deal, that when the government makes these funds available, whether it's affordable housing money or whatever, there has to be a process whereby uh, it's applied for. Now, there were two incidents, though, Bob, in the last number of months, because I remember you coming on and talking about one of them. Uh, one is right here in town, Arsenal, middle of Defasco, but there was also uh, some assistance offered to Algoma as they get back on their feet. Yeah. So those were different from sort of tariff reduction yeah. or tariff. Yeah. That was uh, a strategic innovation fund, uh, the uh, EDC, Economic Development Canada funds made available for for capital uh, costs of new equipment being applied to steelmaking process in this case, where it would be more efficient or environmentally uh, safe and so on, and so that money is available. So it's not really directly as a result of the tariffs. What it's doing is trying to make our companies more efficient by better production facilities, and so it's related to a capital investment that the company is making that the government will, in the DeVasco case, uh, give a 25% 
uh, grant, which was $50 million, and there were two different grants in the Algoma case, which totaled $90 million. So it gets confusing to the public what which money is going where. And probably it's our fault for not you know being clear about it, because uh, that's why we have these programs to try to figure out what the heck is exactly going on. But that's a simplified version of that one. But maybe you can clarify something for me, because I was a little confused as I started looking at some of these numbers. Uh, when when Trump announced his tariffs, and, and obviously we knew there was going to be some retaliation by the Canadian government, and indeed there was, and, yeah. and we, we've seen that happen, and, and now we've got this figure, the estimate, really, because I don't think anybody's actually counted it out yet, but about $839 million, and it's it's estimated that it's probably going to reach a billion by the time Mr. Morneau delivers his budget in a few weeks. So it's a significant amount of money. But at the time, the government stated that this was supposed to be I hate to be too colloquial about this, for a rainy day for the steel industry. In other words, when these tariffs from the U.S. really started to ha- have a negative impact, there was going to be money available. Okay, and I, okay, that makes a lot of sense to an awful lot of people. But then, of course, there's a companion story that uh, we've been talking about for the last eight weeks now that says because of a rise in steel or drop in steel prices, the industry is not hurting as much as they thought it was going to. So, I mean, I, I suppose, and I'm not trying to you know, carry the water here for the government, but you're not going to give money just to increase somebody's profit margin. I mean, if they're in dire circumstance, this money's here. But I don't hear too many steelmakers right now that are in that circumstance. Well, that's a very good observation because, on the one hand, any large steelmaking firm can show you millions of dollars in tariffs paid out. Uh, but also there are more millions of dollars uh, being made in profits. Well, I mean, ArcelorMittal's doing well. We uh, we saw that Stelco's yeah. profits are up in the last quarter. Uh, Algoma's just kind of getting back on their feet. But it's not as if anybody's saying, hey, we're going to lay people off and shut the doors. And that's what that fund is for, isn't it? Well, yeah, there's EI, uh, Workshare, very complex, complex uh, tapestry of of. Ways of handling this, and and you take them as they come along. But generally speaking, uh, when you talk about uh, the profitability of steel companies, yes, they are making money. Yes, they are paying lots out in tariffs. But uh, the price of steel has gone up to the point where it's compensating for much of the tariff costs. And then look at the value of the Canadian dollar. You know, so it's it's not a simple matter to understand, and it it takes a lot of corporate lawyers and and tax accountants to figure out. You know, in the end result, what what should we do? The the thing that everyone has to remember, and I I know you know this, Bill. It's just like there's only one taxpayer. There's only one purchaser. And no matter what it is, whether you're buying a steel pot for or you know, a new metal awning or whatever it is, as the purchaser, you are paying all those costs. And that's the lie that Donald Trump has foisted upon America because they are paying. The American uh, taxpayer and the the American purchaser, uh, for instance, uh, is paying $5,000 more per house because of the softwood uh, implications, etc. So that's the thing that gets lost in a lot of government announcements and so on. At the, when it's all said and done, it's it's Bill Kelly paying out of his pocket or whoever uh, when when you go to make the retail purchase because that's where the, the buck stops. And listen, to, to that point about, you know, the fact that steel prices are a lot higher than people anticipated and, and, and orders have not dried up yet, 
I don't think, Bob, anybody is naive to think that's going to carry on for any great length of time. Eventually, probably sooner than later, these tariffs are going to start to have a negative impact. Yes, they are. Uh, the, the tough spot for a lot of companies was uh, contracts that they had written, you know, a year ago. Uh, we're now being impacted by uh, the new economic realities of tariffs. And so those companies were having to uh, put it on their bottom line. But then, of course, once new contracts are are signed, they they may not, in fact, be signed because uh, if you can't compete because of the cost of materials and so on. A good example is when we're going back into our new digs today, the west block, which is the, the old building to the west side of the center block. And the, there was a courtyard that was covered over by a beautiful uh, steel and glass atrium. And that, that structure was built by Walter's group in Hamilton. And we're very proud of them. And I've had many meetings with Walter Coppolar and so on. And he said, you know, the tariff fight uh, for Stelco and DeFasco and Algoma is one thing. But we don't, we can't access the kind of steel that we need for a lot of these projects domestically, and so we're paying the extra tariff money that's seemingly there to protect the big steel maker, but isn't helping us in what we do for a living. So it becomes very complicated, and there's no question, Bill, that over the next uh, few months. Uh, reality is going to hit big time, but our hope is that it'll hit in, in very big ma- measure in the United States because they're paying a price too. They just don't get it yet. Uh, glad you brought that up. The Walters Group, one of the great stories, success stories here. A little company way down in the south end of the mountain here. That, uh, but I mean, they they have projects all over the world. Uh, and some huge projects too. I mean, they're just fascinating. But and and we do know because there's economic evidence that uh, that the tariffs are actually, especially the Canadian post tariffs on U.S. goods, are starting to have an, an impact on local economies. I don't think the White House knows that or, or understands that, but I know they're starting to get some complaints. But the other element to this, and I know you guys are going to talk about this uh, after the fewer of the first day gets over here with the new session, Bob, is is protectionism and maybe hopefully you know the end of tariffs, but probably not. This this is the new normal. I mean, I think a lot of people up here were thinking, well, you know what, if uh, the Democrats can win the majority in the House, that'll be the end of all this stuff. There's just as many Democrats that are protectionists to their local economies as there were Republicans. Uh, And it's going to be a very, very tough nut to crack. I even heard a comment that some Democrats were saying, it's not the Mexican border that we should be concerned about, it's the Canadian border. So, you know, there's the devil that you know and the devil that you don't know in terms of how these things are going to play out. I'll give you another example of uh, the, on the topic of uh, tariffs. There's a company in Hamilton that makes wheel sets for trains, for passenger cars and so on. The only place they get those wheels is uh, they get the blanks from Spain, China, Japan, Ukraine, all over the place. Not Nobody's made it in Canada for 25 years. And so they're having to pay a, a, a tax and so I'm working on that file with the company right now. But if they, in fact, have to pay a 10% uh, tariff on those products and they make wheels, those wheels will be purchased by companies perhaps who make LRT trains. You see what I mean? And it just goes on and on as to where, who's going to pick up the cost ultimately of, of these things. I should tell you as well, Bill, that we have a trade committee. They've been dealing with uh, 
Paris, and we'll be coming out with recommendations based on the conversation you, you, we're having now and many other people have had. So, so what are the actual impacts? What are the soft points? Uh, why aren't these monies being moved, as, as you talked about in your opening comments? And so uh, when we get those recommendations in very short order, maybe a week or 10 days, something like that, we'll call the Steel Caucus members together, the all-party Steel Caucus, and uh, that'll involve, of course, David Sweet and uh, Scott Duval and other members of various parties to see where we need to be going on this. But it's it's complex. It's not simple. And once again, the uh, the bottom line for everybody listening is you're the one who ends up paying when when these tariffs get applied. I guess the concern, and, and there's a history here, which is maybe why this is a legitimate concern, though, Bob, is that when governments get and I'm not going to call it a windfall, but this is a, a substantial amount of money that's been garnered because of the the surtaxes and the uh, levies that have been raised here. But as we say, it's probably going to be about a billion dollars within the next month or so. Yeah. There's always a concern that governments that are cash-starved, and I've never known a government that wasn't cash-starved, uh, well, they're they're tempted to simply say, we're going to use this for general revenue. Boy, this is great. And past governments have dipped into EI funds. I mean, they've done some rather nefarious things to, to try to balance their books. Is there any assurance at all that the government's going to leave this money and, and just let it sit there or whatever they're going to do, accrue interest uh, for the stated purpose and not dip into it? Well, all I can tell you is that uh, we have great relationships uh, among the ministers, Nav Baines and uh, Finance Minister Borno. Uh, we're all going to be looking at each other face-to-face uh, beginning uh, this morning when I go in, and uh, that will be a topic uh, for sure. I'll give you a local example of that, Bill, and that was the Flamborough Raceway money. Remember, uh, after amalgamation, there was about $5 million that came from uh, Flamborough to uh, the raceway to Flamborough, and they were going to f- do some, certain things with it. So under amalgamation, it all the money went into the big pot of the Hamilton budget. The Brantford mayor had told me was that they took uh, similar casino proceeds and applied it to specific things like hospitals or schools, or I I can't remember exactly, but that's a very good thing. Uh, Not to lose money, uh, just to throw it in the general pot. Uh, If you can actually define how those monies are going to be spent, that's, a lot better thing for the taxpayer to understand than, hey, we got another million bucks or a billion dollars in, in general revenues. Well, one of the most egregious examples of that was back in the early 1990s with the NDP government here in Ontario when they introduced the tire tax. Uh, every time you bought tires, there was an additional tax. But they said, don't worry, all the money that we, we raise from this is going to go into repairing Ontario highways because they're in terrible condition. And we thought, well, okay, I drive those highways. That's not a bad idea. I, I don't think a nickel of it ever went into that. It just went back into general revenue. Yeah. So that's the scary thing about government. And for those of us who deal with household budgets, and now, uh, and you've done that, and you know, you've had your council experience, uh, it is a little daunting <laughs> to to understand how, well, how, how do you do that? You know, like, let's, let's, let's be specific about how this is real money from real people paying this money. It's not yours. And so are you going to use it to the best advantage? Uh, I'm, we have those conversations a lot. So, Well, listen, uh, as, as, as the Minister Freeland stated in Davos last week, Bob, uh, your, your Minister, of course, of uh, Foreign yeah. Affairs, uh, if, if Trump would drop these tariffs, that would go a long way towards resolving this whole issue. 
it's a, totally ridiculous, the whole idea. That I, I visited a company not too long ago that in Canada that takes a, a large ingot, and yes, there are still ingots produced in various places, not in Canada. Uh, and then the, when that ingot leaves the, the plant, it's a cannon for an Abrams tank. And we don't make those in Canada. So where where is the security issue between Canada and the United States? It's such a joke. It's but it's not you know not many people are laughing. Well, uh, back at it again today, of course, in the House of Commons, and yeah. I know a lot of this stuff and much more is going to be discussed. Bob, thanks as always. I know you got to get back into your caucus thing. I'll let you go. Thanks for the time Thank today. Hamilton East Stony Creek MP Bob Bertina. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, as we've been saying, uh, Ottawa, one of the focus of uh, just about everybody in uh, this country today because Parliament's back. Uh, they've been uh, having an extended Christmas break, and uh, they're back to work today. And this is uh, probably going to be the last session of Parliament before the next federal election. These guys will probably work until May or June or whatever the case might be. Uh, they'll dissolve the Parliament, and uh, then, of course, by October, we're heading into an election. So uh, there's a lot on the plate, a lot to talk about, a lot to talk about that hasn't even happened yet. Uh, and we're going to get into that uh, with uh, some of the foreign affairs things vis-a-vis China and tariffs and everything else. Joining us to talk about this and set the scene is Genevieve Tellier, professor in the School of Political Sciences and Studies, of course, at the University of Ottawa. Genevieve, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. I guess, I guess first and foremost, uh, they've moved over a little bit. Uh, they're, they're not in the center block this time. Yes, well, that's going to be exciting today. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to look at how it will change the tone because everybody seems to be kind of intimated, yes, uh, uneasy with that or, or, or uh, looking forward for that. So uh, it'll be nice. It's supposed to be a nice building, so I will visit it. Oh, you haven't been in there yet. I, I, I saw... I saw closed, yes, so it will be open publicly, I think, today. So Yeah, and, and we were just talking about the, the design and definition. Actually, it was constructed in large part by Hamilton Company, Walters Group, that uh, does steel structures and things of this nature, and they've kind of turned it into an atrium. That's what I understand. Yes, they took out the uh, outdoor facility and switched it indoors, so... It's going to be interesting to see how it is. I'm sure that'll make all the MPs a little more, uh, you know, sublime and just, you know, the, everything will be fine. There'll be no yelling or screaming or catcalls this time, mm, will they? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, to that end, boy, they've got enough uh, fuel for the fire, don't they? Yes, and so uh, we have already heard the opposition, especially the Conservative uh, Party, uh, launching attack on the Liberals. And as you said in, in your introduction, uh, this China issue and other other, other stuff, I would say. Uh, so the, I, I think they, they're going to attack pretty hard the, the, the government. So they have been in resets for many weeks. So now they'll resume and we'll be looking mostly at the period question today. And so I don't expect to see a calm tone. On the contrary, I think the uh, electoral campaign has already been started, although not officially, but uh, since January 1st, we saw Andrew Scheer uh, campaigning, uh, attacking the carbon tax, for instance. And so um, they will they will challenge uh, liberals, that for sure. When we use that term China and the China file, Genevieve, that, that's pretty all-encompassing. But, I mean, there are some specifics there that, that I would think that the uh, the opposition MPs are going to try to grasp onto. Uh, obviously, there's the Huawei situation. There's the, there's the extradition thing with 
going on with the states, mm-hmm. and that's unfolding as slowly as, and not as fat quickly as we'd like. But the McCallum issue, all of a sudden, uh, which you got to know, uh, the Andrew, Andrew Shear and, uh, and of course the NDP critics are going to be jumping all over today when they get back in there. How embarrassing is that for the government? Well, it is because if you recall, John McCallum was a former minister, a former liberal minister. He was pushed a bit aside, and so we offer him a good position as ambassador of China. And now to have him reside in the middle of a serious crisis, so that shouldn't be minimized, um, it's kind to say or admitting, well, maybe it was not the best choice or the wisest choice to have him as ambassador. Uh, so that's the first one. Uh, the second one is um, John McCallum seems to have been spoken his mind in the sense that kind of speaking true to power. And so maybe he said a few things that some believed, uh, but said it publicly. And it seems that the liberal party did not like that, did not appreciate that. And so you're getting punished for that. So how tight are all the members of the party, the minister? the inner circle about what they can say publicly. And so that would seem to suggest that uh, the PM and its surrounding is exercising close control on the messaging. Um, And that's also bizarre because uh, if you recall when Trudeau was elected in 2015, he said, I will let my minister speak whatever they want to say. And so uh, we'll keep an open flow with, with the media, with the population. And so that we didn't see also. So you see there are a few um, issues with that file. Uh, and on top of that, uh, our relationship with China, which we thought were somewhat good because Justin Trudeau is well received there. And so it doesn't seem to be very good. So you see many, many aspects that could be fought by the conservative and the NDP also uh, to, uh, starting today in, in the House of Commons. I mean, that's the, the crux of it, isn't it? Genevieve, I mean, you know, his role as ambassador, uh, I mean, and, and again, I guess it varies from, from portfolio to portfolio, but I mean, essentially the ambassador's job is to really restate and support the government policy, not to, to make editorial comments about it. And, and you would think with a man with his experience, so he's been in, you know, in Parliament for over 20 years, John McCallum had to know better. Yes, that's what I think. And so, yes, it's important to know what exactly it's expected from an ambassador. And uh, when you listen, in fact, when you listen generally to ambassadors, it's kind of kind of boring what they are saying because they <laughs> yeah. cannot say anything. And that's I understand that. So, yes, it was diverse, uh, it was entertaining, I would say, but not for the good reason. And so, yes, so uh, so yes, as I said, it's a, the message that will be conveyed that uh, it was a wrong pick. Uh, Michelin as an uh, ambassador for China, um, and we'll see who could do the job better. But that's for sure; uh, it's not the news for the liberals. And, and your point's well taken. I mean, what McCallum said uh, the, may well be true. Mm-hmm. It may well be in Canada's best interest if the U.S. dropped extradition. Uh, it may well be that there were political undertones between this, but that's not his job to say that. Uh, yes, exactly. And his job currently is to talk with the Chinese authority behind closed door and to see what is the solution, what's the option to get out of this uh, crisis. And yes, it, it's not for him to go public. Now, how, uh, how important was uh, the, the push of the liberal to have him public. I mean, they've, they've brought him back in the country. He was highly publicized. And so uh, the, the liberal said, well, we'll have the, the ambassador talk to the Canadian. Uh, if so, maybe that was not the best 
wise move to do. Um, <laughs> in hindsight, yeah. Yeah. So yes, uh, yes, you're right. Uh, we may think that this is a good thing, but uh, looking at the other, the, the fallouts, uh, the, the result, yes, it wasn't that good. Was it fatal? I mean, you know, things like this. I mean, there can be a cumulative effect on this. Or uh, other governments have had ministers that have misspoke and maybe mm-hmm. done some things wrong. Prime ministers sometimes that have misspoke and yes. done something wrong. There's always going to be a firestorm of controversy about that for a few days in in Parliament. As, as they go after this, but is, is, does this have a long short shelf life? Um, well, it's an accumulation of different things going on uh, with international relations. So the last thing that the Trudeau wants to us to speak about is his trip to India last year. Okay, uh, but if you add that plus a few misstep internationally, um, well, the addition may be for it fatal. I, I don't think that this specific issue is, um, but if you look at the accumulation, uh, Trudeau may not be as strong as we think he should be or he, we expected on the international uh, scene, except maybe with the Americans. So with Donald Trump, we have a new NAFTA, although it has not been ratified yet, uh, but his uh, foreign minister maybe is helping and also Tricia Freeland kind of bring some credibility on the international scene, I would say. Um, but this is his minister, it's not him. So Trudeau, per se, as a important actor on the international field uh, scene, um, it's not maybe what we were expecting. Now, that being said, another thing is that now we see the paradox between um, putting human res- uh, rights uh, as a priority with our international um, trades. Uh, so we think about uh, Saudi Arabia, China, uh, maybe Venezuela uh, may be coming. And so talking about that and see then the fallout from an economic point of view. So maybe that that may harm a bit more the liberals. Well, that was a double-edged sword, wasn't it, Genevieve? I mean, Mr. McCallum's comments, uh, I'm, well, first of all, the Chinese loved it because basically what he did is underscored their position on the whole thing anyway. Mm-hmm. But now they're upset that he's been dismissed. The, the Americans are upset by the comments McCallum made. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he's he's thrown mud into both waters here. Uh, I, I guess what Mr. Trudeau needs at this stage is, is a fixer, and it may well be, uh, as you mentioned, Christia Freeland, who's back from Davos, and she'll be at the meeting. I, I'm assuming that uh, she's going to have her plate pretty full over the next couple of days dealing with both those governments. Yes, uh, the, the thing is that she has experience with Donald Trump, so maybe that's a good news for her. Uh, but yes, she has her hands full, uh, and, and you're right, uh, this must be addressed rapidly because the, the House resumes, so during the Christmas period, uh, holidays, uh, it was not as an emergency because the opposition was not as visible. But yes, today I expect that the first question asked in period question today will be about the China, uh, China, China file, um, the, the dismissal of the ambassador, uh, what, what else, what to expect. And yes, uh, the opposition is going to go strong on that, I think. Everybody who's there today, obviously there's these issues that we've talked about, and, and, and they're going to make their hay with those things today. But they've all got their eyes on October, don't they, Genevieve? Mm-hmm. They they know, look, this is, you know, this is the, the stretch run towards that election. Yeah. Uh, and, and they've got to be developing strategies, I would think, towards that. And, you know, as you mentioned, there's they've already started politicking about this, and you've heard the stump speeches from both Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Scheer on this. But uh, you would think that both those parties and both those leaders are going to be looking for an opportunity to score points in this parliament. Yeah. 
Yes, and what I understand is that the platform are already done, so they're going to test a few ideas until they present it uh, officially. Um, yes, they're going to, and, and we already see the, the strategy from uh, mostly from the conservative and the liberal. So the conservative, the message we've got uh, just yesterday was uh, life is getting more expensive, and so this is the fault of the this is on the, the yes the fault of the liberals. So because of the liberals and their carbon tax and um, other initiative, they're making life harder for Canadians. So that's a message that we're going to hear a lot from the Conservatives. On the other hand, the Liberals will say, yes, but we are protecting the environment, we are protecting the Canadian families, uh, children, and so uh, what we are doing is will benefit the economy for the remainder. So it's going to be basically on the economic aspect of it. Um, and the next high point will be the budget. So we don't know when it's going to be tabled. I would expect uh, sooner than later, because the liberal want to focus or change attention from China to something else, and they want to, they will want to control the narrative. I would say, so I, I do expect a budget. I would say uh, in mid February, where uh, they're gonna then again show their their uh, what they have done until now, and probably a few ideas they want to push for the next uh, electoral campaign. But yes, this is no more uh, about uh, governing or presenting bills, uh, debating ideas. It's about winning the next election, and uh, we'll see that in Parliament. It's uh, uh, The wild card of this whole thing is, going, of course, going to be Jagmeet Singh. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's going to have his by-election, of course, in a few weeks. Uh, assuming he wins that, then he's there as, as another foil. But I guess the other element that the Prime Minister and I guess his government have to look at at this stage, Genevieve, is uh, you mentioned about the the uh, the opposition party, especially the conservatives coming at him. Uh, Andrew Shear's got some some advocates and some acolytes on the provincial level, with Premier Mo and certainly Premier Ford here in Ontario, that uh, seem to be doing a lot of the fighting for Shear. Is that going to be a factor? Um, yes, uh, the, those provincial government will, of course, and let's add Alberta, which probably will be conservative. Yeah, but Jason Kenney's likely yes. to win that election. And so, yes, they will push, uh, they will try their best to, to, to help the federal conservatives, that's for sure. Um, will that be a factor? It's a double sword in the sense that we often see that what uh, the, the ideology at one level, uh, let's say the provincial level, uh, Elector will, voter will try to vote for another party at the federal level. So if you have a lot of conservative provincially, uh, you may be tempted to have a liberal co- uh, government or NDP government. So just to have things balanced. Um, so it could also help the liberals if they play that card, saying, well, if we push all conservative, this is what you have to expect. Uh, and so you should vote for us. Um, but yes, I would see a greater involvement, although normally the tradition is that um, premiers do not get involved in federal politics. Uh, this is not what we have seen until now, especially from Doug Ford, uh, who seems to really dislike Trudeau, so we'll try to do everything to harm him. And, 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 and that's a real battleground, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm, it, yeah. practically speaking, Genevieve, I mean, uh, you know, the Liberals aren't going to win too many seats in Alberta, and, or North Saskatchewan. I mean, Ralph Goodale will probably get reelected, but not too many others. Ontario seems to be the real battleground for them. Yes, it is. Quebec for another reason. And Quebec, certainly, but, yes. Um, uh, I think Quebec is overrated in the sense that I, I personally think that it's more in Ontario that the real battlefield will be going on. And so, yes, so uh, uh, it's going to be a tough fight, I, I would say. Well, the uh, first salvos will uh, go in question period a little bit later on today, and it's only going to get worse, I guess, before it gets better for all of them. Or entertaining, we'll see. You betcha. It's certainly that, yes. Genevieve, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. Thank you very much. Take care. Genevieve Tellier, Professor 
at the uh, University of Ottawa. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.